0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Professor Hio Dobson, Professor of Japan's International Relations at the University of Sheffield, to discuss the cancelled 46th G7 Summit. We will explore the summit's controversies and changes, reflecting the seismic political changes seen within G7 nations over 2020. We also discuss what changes this predicts for the G7 in 2021, the first to be held in post-Brexit Britain. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Hugo. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Good morning, Ollie. Thank you for inviting me. So to start off, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your field and how your interests have brought you there?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm originally from northeast of England. I went to Leeds University to study history and politics. I had very little interest in Japan, could probably barely point to it on a map, until my older brother went to Japan whilst I was an undergraduate student and um, started coming back with some interesting stories and gizmos and gadgets and so on and I suddenly thought oh Japan looks quite interesting so I started to choose Japanese history modules Japanese politics modules and um, started to do a dissertation on Japanese history and the interest sort of grew from there so it was never part of a sort of master plan to be a professor of Japan's international relations at Sheffield University it just sort of uh, came about accidentally in a way but after finishing my master's degree I stayed at Leeds to do a master's degree in international studies. I thought I was going I was pretty sure I wanted to do a PhD but the one problem was that I didn't have the language and I thought well no one's going to take you that seriously if you can't use Japanese sources. Um, So I was fortunate to apply for and uh, be awarded um, a Daiwa Anglo-Japanese Foundation Scholarship. So I was a Daiwa scholar for two years and that gave me the opportunity just to focus on Japanese language. So I spent one year at SOAS learning foundational Japanese and another year in Tokyo, extending that Japanese language learning. And during that time, I was able to make some contacts in Japanese academia so that when I came back to the UK, and we're talking now, 1995 i came back to start my phd at sheffield university of course under Mm -hmm. professor glenn hook those contacts that i would made in tokyo really paid off because i remember one day going in for a supervisory session with glenn hook and he said to me that he'd received an email from a friend at tokyo university a mutual friend it turned out and they wondered if i wanted to take up a scholarship at tokyo university which of course I did, and I went back to Japan in 1996 and stayed there till 1999, completing my PhD and then coming back to start work at the University of Kent in their politics and international relations department before moving to Sheffield in 2020. And I've been there ever since, which makes me feel very old thinking about
0: that. So thanks for that, (laughs) Holly. So um, when did the G7 start to come into your research interests? Good question.
1: So when I came back to Sheffield, in fact, just before I came back to Sheffield, a small group of us centered around Glenn Hook um, decided to do to produce a textbook on Japan's international relations. This was Glenn Hook and his first three PhD students. So his first PhD student graduate successfully is Julie Gilson, who's at Birmingham University. And then it was Christopher Hughes at Warwick University. Um, and then it was me. And the four of us thought we would collaborate on a textbook because there was no real systematic textbook covering Japan's role in the world. We identified the gap in the market. We got to work on writing it. And everybody was allocated their field of specialism. So Julie is an expert on Japan, Europe relations, uh, Chris Hughes uh, focuses on Japan's role in East Asia. Um, I had done my PhD on Japan's role in the United Nations peacekeeping operations and had a broader interest in Japan's role in the United Nations. So I extended that to then look at other um, international organizations and institutions. So as well as the United Nations, I started looking at the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and then the G7, or the G8, as it was at that stage. Um, We can talk a little bit about the alpha-numeric combination that describes this forum. And it sort of struck me at the time that there wasn't really anything out there um, that looked at, I mean, there wasn't much that looked at the G8, let alone Japan's role therein, there weren't even many Japanese scholars who were looking at Japan's role in that particular group. So it seemed to me to be an interesting gap in the literature, but as I started to explore it for the purposes of the textbook, it it captured my imagination in a way. And at the time I was looking for the next big project. I think a lot of people who've done a PhD Obviously, doing the PhD is the real challenge, but I think a lot of people would recognize that finding the next big project after a PhD is a real challenge. You don't just want to carry on doing the same subject until you retire. You want to move into a new area. And it's like that difficult second album. (laughs) What are you going to move on to? And I was losing interest in Japan's role in peacekeeping operations. It had peaked as an issue in the 1990s, but starting to be tailing off a bit. So I was looking around for a natural extension of my interest. And this textbook provided the opportunity to familiarise myself with the G7, or G8 as it was then, as I say, and um, enabled me to then take it further as part of a book project, which um, was published in 2004. And it was basically a a book that looked at Japan's role in the G7 and the G8 from its very beginnings in 1975 through to um, 2002 um, was the last summit that I looked at as part of that book. And thereafter, I've just sort of carried on looking at these summits and things have changed with these summits as well. We now have a G20. We have what people have referred to as a gaggle
0: of Gs.
1: There's a lot of these (laughs) alphanumeric combinations out there. Um, and just trying to make sense of it all is is, is really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's surprising to find out that there was this gap in the literature, given how significant this political group seems to be. So as a veteran scholar of the G7, if I may, I thought it would be best to explain to our listeners what a typical G7 summit might consist of before we jump into the peculiarities of the 46th G7 summit. What issues in recent years has been on the agenda of the G7, and what has been the output of these meetings? Uh, In particular, could you share with us what Japan's role in the G7 has been to date?
1: Sure. Um, So, I mean, this is this is what I think is fascinating about the G7, and it's to do with its informality. That you know, this is not a legal organization; it has no right to exist. It has no charter. It has no constitution. It exists because leaders want it. To exist. And if they didn't want it to exist, they wouldn't attend. So it's based around informality. And the whole idea back in 1975, when, uh, well, it was originally a G6 at that point, the idea behind it was to get the leaders of the most significant countries in the world, in the Western capitalist world, together in an informal setting to try and provide political leadership for the various challenges the world was facing at that time we just had an oil shock there was economic dislocation macroeconomic issues that needed to be addressed it felt that the world wasn't really making progress on these so we needed to get away from the traditional mechanisms of international collaboration and provide an injection of political momentum and the french president uh, she's got who Passed away only recently, decided to invite the leaders of, well, as well as France, it was Britain, West Germany, as it was then, Italy, the United States, and Japan to what was the first G6 summit in the suburbs of Paris. And as I say, the idea was to try and reach some kind of consensus among the leaders. There was no formal agenda. It was regarded as often just a fireside chat, get the leaders together, put them in a room, their interpersonal relations that they've built up with each other will lead to a consensus, they can go home to their countries and provide the political impetus to push forward on an issue. So there's that informality which really sort of interested me, you know, this organisation that has no right to exist unless the leaders want to bring it into existence, but hugely important, some of the most important countries in the world making decisions on behalf of the rest of the world. So since then, the summit has become more formal. It has expanded in its membership. So the following year, Canada was invited in 1976. Um, the following year, um, the European Union or the EEC as it was then, was invited because you had Britain West Germany, France, and Italy, making decisions on behalf of the rest of Europe, so it was felt he you needed representation from the rest of Europe. Russia went through a process after the end of the Cold War of joining the group so that um, it was initially invited as a guest, but by 1998, in the Birmingham G8 summit, it it was the eighth member, if you like, of the group. And we can talk about this later, but Russia has since been uh, suspended from the from G8, so it's reverted back to a G7 since 2014. And alongside that expansion or fluctuation in its membership, it's also become a lot more ceremonial, it's become a lot more formalized in a way. But there's still always been attempts to try and bring the meeting back to this informal gathering, so that it's all about the individual leaders getting together, all about the relationships they build up with each other. Um, trying to provide that political injection into resolving specific issues. That has remained at the heart of, of the group. And remember, this is a group that has no no formal membership rules. Basically, countries are invited because they are sort of recognised by the others as great powers of the day. The only membership criteria they can refer to goes back to the first summit, when they referred to their shared values around democracy, capitalism, free markets, the rule of the law, human rights, and so on. That's the only thing that it can refer to as membership criteria. So very informal, and an actual summit itself will involve two or three days, often in a stately home, very comfortable surroundings, um, because of security concerns. You know, In many ways, this is one of the biggest terrorist targets in the world. So They always have to think about hosting them in difficult-to-access places, but very comfortable places so the leaders can relax and start to build the interpersonal relationships that are so important. And they will focus on a range of working sessions, uh, lunches, ceremonial dinners. Leaders will bring along their wives. There will be social functions taking place. The one way to understand it is to, if you know your history, go back to the concert system that operated after the Napoleonic Wars. That was very much an informal gathering of great powers who recognised each other as great powers. There was the ceremonialisation that went along with it in terms of balls and dances and so on. Uh, the Congress of Vienna being the first one, you know, that was called the summit that danced because there was so much going on on the periphery of the summit. Countries brought huge delegations to that particular summit, but it was informal. It gathered if there was an issue to deal with. So these countries in the G7 and G8 gathered together to deal with macroeconomic issues initially, but then the agenda changed to look at the Cold War, look at issues around terrorism. With the end of the Cold War, how you manage Russia's transition was a topic on the agenda of the, of the G7. And by the time Britain hosted, many people remember the UK summit in Glen Eagles in 2005 because you had the Live Aid concerts in London. And the focus was very much on debt relief and uh, Africa at that point. But since then, you've seen climate change put on the agenda. And really, the leaders can put whatever items they want on the agenda. Because it's informal, because it's inflexible, it means that... Um, Leaders can respond to events as they happen, so it might be that something happens, like India and Pakistan test nuclear devices a day before the summit is held. That will then appear on the summit as a last-minute agenda change. Um, much more flexible than say organisations like the United Nations. I realise I'm waffling here, and you also asked me to talk a bit, a little bit about Japan's role as well. So within that formats of these informal summits. I think one thing as regards Japan's role to keep in mind is that it was involved from the very beginning, and that was hugely important for Japan. So 1975, Prime Minister Miki represented Japan at this first summit in the suburbs of Paris, and that was was important for Japan. It was recognition that it was a great power of the day remember that the formal mechanisms of international cooperation, like the United Nations, had kept Japan out for a considerable period of time. So Japan's membership of the United Nations was vetoed until 1956, when it was able to join. So it always felt like it was a comer, It was a sort of second-rate power in a way. But within the G7, Japan's position... Was recognized from the very beginning. The role that Japan has appointed for itself within the G7 is Asia's representative, so Ajian or Daihyo, being the phrase. Now, it's self appointed at this role because it is the only Asian representative within the G7. But Japan has gone out of its way to try and include the opinions of Asian countries. Diplomats, prime ministers have toured East Asia before these summits to try and gauge the opinion of Asian countries and have then fed back the discussions at the summit to these countries. And when Japan hosted the G8 summit in 2000 in Okinawa, it was very keen to give it an Asian flavour. So part of the reason it chose Okinawa as the venue was to give it a broader Asian feel to the summit and bring broader Asian issues into discussion. And you could probably say that if it wasn't for Japan, the G7 and G8 would have overlooked a number of Asian issues, particularly in the 1990s with the Asian economic crisis. Japan was very proactive in ensuring that these issues were discussed within a forum, at which Japan was the only Asian country. So I think that's an important aspect of Japan's role within these summits. The last thing I'll mention is a possible handicap to Japan's role, and. That's around the emphasis that the G7 places on leaders. Now, Japan's prime minister, as any student of Japanese politics will know, tends to be a transient, weak character. So on average, Japanese prime ministers have served about two years in power which means that if you're going to be meeting other leaders on an annual basis at these summits, it doesn't give the Japanese Prime Minister the opportunity to build up the interpersonal relations that, say, Reagan and Thatcher might have, or Blair and Bush. There are exceptions to that, and the three that spring to mind are Nakasone. He was very proactive in building a relationship with Reagan. Koizumi, who obviously had a strong relationship with Bush, and was a, a more vocal participant within the G8 summit. And more recently, Abe, who, as Japan's longest-serving prime minister, was again able to, well, he became longest-serving leader apart from Angela Merkel within the G7 format. So he became sort of something of an elder statesman amongst G7 leaders. So Japan has been handicapped by having a weak prime minister, often the Prime Minister has been regarded or described in the Japanese media as displaying three S's, the three S's of smiling, silent, or even sleeping during most of the summit discussions. <laughs> but there are opportunities where, you know, individual uh, leaders who have been quite, str- uh, quite strong and influential have been able to translate that into a strong summit presence. Final thing, absolute final thing. I said The last thing I said was going to be the final thing, but I think it's worth just mentioning the G20 as well. So since 2008, we've not just had a G7, G8, we've had a G20. And this was created largely in response to the global financial crisis and the perceived failure of the G7 and the G8. So earlier in that year, in the summer of that year, Japan had hosted the G8 summit in Hokkaido, And the state of the global economy wasn't even on the agenda. Later that year, you get the collapse of Lehman Brothers, you get the global financial crisis. It looks like the G8 has basically failed. So the idea of a G20 that brings together the traditional countries of the G7, G8 with the rising countries of China, India, the BRICS countries, as well as middle powers like Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea, Australia, and so on is realised for the first time. The G20 had been meeting at the financial minister's level since 1998, 99, but this was upgraded to the leader's level. And it was, it was probably the final thing that George W. Bush did as president, but contributed to a coordinated response to the global financial crisis. And since then, it has met either twice a year or once a year. Last year, Saudi Arabia was chairing the G20, Previous to that, Japan was hosting G G20 summit in Osaka. And this presented quite a challenge for Japan initially, because Japan's G7, G8 role was based around its position as a great power of the day. It was recognized as such. It was also Asia's representative. Now, with an expanded forum of 20, we see that Japan's role as a great power is diluted somewhat. And also, it has to compete against other Asian countries, most notably China, for that role of Asia's representative. So, South Korea was actually the first Asian country to host uh, a G20 summit. China secured the right to host a summit in 2016. On these occasions, Japan wanted that position, wanted that role, but wasn't able to do so until 2019. So the G20 has sort of presented Japan with a bit of a challenge. It doesn't want to be responsible for the G20 failing. It wants to be a good global citizen, but it doesn't want the G20 to necessarily succeed so much that the G7 and the G8, which are a preferred forum for Japan, fails. So it wants to keep the G7, G8 with a specific purpose while the G20 goes around its work. So in the Japanese perception, I think it's been very much the G7, G8 is the, in the driving seat and that the G20 is a forum that can provide uh, legitimacy to some of the decisions that the G7 and the G8 make.
0: Thank you for that comprehensive background to the G7. Uh, With that in mind, let's get to the meat of today's episode. So, The 46th G7, in its planned format, was controversial in a number of ways, many revolving around its host, the outgoing US President Donald Trump. Such issues included his attempts to host the event at his own Trump National Doral Resort, his goal of creating an anti-China bloc, his repeated calls for Russia to rejoin the G7, and his decision to keep climate change off the agenda how controversial was this planned summit and what was the reaction of the other g7 members and how do you think it would have played out
1: so yeah 2020 was a strange year for everybody main reason obviously being the global pandemic but it impacted on the g7 in that we now have a gap um this was the year that the g7 never took place but it was always going to be a controversial summit i mean we knew that the us would be hosting this year, because the hosting of the G7 follows a clear uh, rotation. So we knew it was going to be America's turn. We just didn't know what Trump was going to be like. And I think there were some signs before 2020 of how Trump might approach it. And they sort of resonate with his role as disruptor in chief in a way. The G7 summits that he's attended. He's tended to be this disruptive force. So, for example, at the Canadian summit in 2018, America became the first country to reject the statement that the G7 releases at the very end of the summit. Usually, every country buys into it. There may be points of contention amongst the various countries and they may be referred to in the final statement the final communique that's released on the last day of the summit but usually the summit is a place for like-mindedness it's a place of you know interpersonal relationships being built up in this informal atmosphere and it's like-minded countries with the same shared values trump went into this and disrupted it from the very beginning so I remember being at the G8 Summit in Canada, in the media centre at Quebec. We took a group of students from Sheffield University. We were all accredited as media representatives and were working in the media centre. And I can remember being approached by uh, Canadian TV to do an interview based on the declaration. So the idea was that Justin Trudeau, as the president of G7 that year, as the host, he would give his final statement and then the communique would be released. And after his announcement, after his speech, he would cut directly to me in the media centre and I would give my initial reaction. Now, in the run-up to this, we weren't even sure there was going to be a communique. For the first time in the G7's history, we were wondering whether you know, there would not be enough consensus to strike a deal. So the fact that there was a communique was quite a big victory. And it also highlighted some important issues. The G7 were going to come together. They were and target um, education and support for young girls in combat zones. Um, this was the sort of initiative that Canada was championing that year. And they got agreement of investment, considerable investment, from the G7 countries into this initiative. But the fact that we were going to get a communique anyway was a huge achievement considering the noises that had been made throughout the the summit. So this is the tone I took. So uh, Justin Trudeau gave his statement, CTV, Canadian TV, cut to me in the media centre and I said, the fact that we've got this agreement is an achievement. You know, Trump has been making mischief, he's been disrupting the summit since it began, but we now have an agreement. What I didn't realise was that Trump was on Air Force One watching Justin Trudeau's press conference and basically started to tweet, saying that America could not agree to this communique and for the first time would be withdrawing from any of the commitments that have been made in that communique. So I regard that as a personal attack on my credibility as an uh, announcement by, um, by Trump, um, which I'll never forgive him for, but I've had the last laugh. Um, <laughs> But it, it was sort of symptomatic of Trump. Get
0: that tweet framed.
1: <laughs> Actually, <yeah. laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. So we we knew that Trump was going to cause trouble. And as regards to the issue of Russia that you raise, you know, at this Canadian summit, he, he he mooted the idea. He arrived in Canada and got off the plane, and the first thing he said was, "Well, we should invite Putin. We should look at inviting Putin." Now, I mentioned Russia's membership of the G7 and G8 previously, but in 2014, in response to issues in the Crimea and in eastern Ukraine and Russian intervention, Russia's membership of what was the G8 was suspended. And technically, Russia still is suspended from the G8. It was meant to be hosting the G8 summit that year in Sochi, um, which had hosted the uh, Winter Olympics just previously. But in the end, Brussels uh, took on the role of host for an emergency G7 summit. So they reconfigured as the G7 minus Russia. And that's how the G7 has met since. Now, Russia's membership is still in suspension. It's not formally been rejected from the G8. There's still a door open for it. But in my opinion, Russia doesn't really care about going back to a G8 forum. It's a member of the G20. It's a member of BRICS it's not really interested in being part of this group, which to be honest, it didn't really have much in common with in the first place. In the 1990s, when we were looking at Russia's membership of the G8, Japan was one of the lone voices that was resistant to including Russia. Germany was very proactive in embracing Russia within the G8 forum, but Japan constantly said it will be disruptive it will lead to the breakdown of like-mindedness amongst this group. Russia is too much of an outlier. And obviously Japan and its own national interests in terms of territorial disputes with Russia. But in a way, Japan could have said, well, we told you so. The experiment of including Russia within the G8 wasn't that successful. But Trump knew this and was raising it not as a serious proposal, I think, but just to be disruptive because he plays with the media, he knows the media will report this. But other leaders within the G7 aren't particularly interested in Russia rejoining, and I don't think Russia is particularly interested in rejoining. So like rejecting Trudeau's communique, like mooting Russian membership, like suggesting his own resort as the host of the summit, and I don't think any leader has ever done that in the history of G7 or G20 summits. Usually they're held in convention centres or stately homes or wherever. Trump has just behaved in his own typical unilateral, um, disruptive way. So there is that. But at the same time, leaders are always respectful of how countries will host their summits. Hosts have quite a bit of room for manoeuvre in terms of which guests they're going to invite, where they're going to hold it, the format of the summit. Basically, the other leaders will largely respect the host's decisions around agenda, membership, guests, and all those kind of things. So, the reaction of the members towards Trump was, for the most part, diplomatically respectful. However, you are still seeing some of Trump's suggestions possibly being realized with the British G7 summit, which this weekend was announced as being held in Cornwall. Um, So June 2021, fingers crossed, it will be a physical summit where leaders will gather in Carbis Bay and it will be Joe Biden's first visit to the UK. I think we'll probably talk about Britain's hosting the summit a little bit later and make some sort of predictions around that. But I think you were always going to, Trump has been a disruptive presence within the G7 summit before he even got his hands on hosting it. We knew that when America hosted it, it would also be controversial in terms of the guests and the agenda and various other aspects. But obviously events around the pandemic overtook that hosting and in the end, we'll never know what a Trump summit would have looked like.
0: What a loss for the world. Speaking of the guests, uh, another controversial aspect of the planned summit was Trump's list of invitees comprised of pro-Trump leaders such as Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, Australia's Scott Morrison, India's Narendra Modi and South Korea's Moon Jae-in. There was even a suggestion to invite Putin himself. Now while this is clearly an attempt by Trump to surround himself with allies, uh, one could argue that these leaders all represent economic powerhouses, which ought to be heard at this summit of global affairs. How would you respond to that in relation to the goals of the G7?
1: So I think, I think membership as an issue has always been controversial. Um, you know, who are all of these countries? What right do they have to make decisions on behalf of the rest of the world? There's no membership criteria. It's just basically a club a club of like-minded countries who recognize each other's position in the world. Now, the G7 has, you could argue, tried to respond to that. You know, it leads to accusations of lacking legitimacy in the decisions it makes. So how do we deal with that? Well, we try and expand our membership. So that's why Canada joined in 1976. There was more of a balance between Europe and North America, European Union joins or European Economic Community joins in 1977 to give broader Europe, Western Europe, more of a voice. Russia's membership is also a part of it. And in a way, you can see that membership, you know, the, the G7 G8 has reformed itself in terms of its membership, whereas more legitimate organisations of international cooperation like the United Nations have been very slow to reform themselves. You know, the United Nations still has enemy clauses in its charter that identify Germany, uh, Japan and Italy, the Axis countries as, as enemies. You know, how do you expect Japan to swallow the fact that it provides such a huge amount of the UN's budget, and yet the UN still refers to Japan as an enemy country and keeps it out of the UN Security Council? You can understand Japan's frustration with the United Nations. Mm. So membership has always been an issue for the G7 and GA. It's tried to address that, as I say, by reaching out and including other countries. It's tried to address it by inviting guests. And again, one of the privileges of a host is that it can invite guests, particularly to reflect a certain issue that they think is important. So at the Japanese G7 in 2016, you saw countries in Southeast Asia being invited, and you could argue that that was part of Japan trying to uh, get an Asian voice reflected, but also a balance against China as well. So it's very much up to the host as to who they're going to invite. So in a way, for Trump to want to invite Australia, India and South Korea, that's the host privilege. But at the same time, this has also been an idea that's sort of been suggested before, the idea that the G7 should look to expand itself by bringing in other like-minded countries. So the idea is sort of like a league of democracies or something, or a concert, going back to the idea of concert diplomacy from the Napoleonic period, a concert of democracies. The democracy being one of the defining shared values of the G7 as originally expressed in that communique at the first summit in 1975. So in many ways, it's sort. Of, you could say, well, it makes sense to extend that idea and include these, the, these other countries as part of this concert of democracy. It was an idea mooted. I remember that John McCain was suggesting that the G7 should be turned into this concert of democracy when he was running against Obama unsuccessfully. But it's been an idea that's been knocking around. So the idea now is that the G7 could transform into a D10, Democracy 10, through adding Australia, India, and South Korea. And in fact, these three countries have been invited to this summer's G7 summit in Cornwall by the UK government. So it seems like it's an idea that's not just conceived in the mind of Trump. It's been an idea that's been knocking around American think tanks and policy circles for a while. And the UK government is going to pick it up and run with it this year. Now, I was just looking at the... um, G7 webpage, and it says that at the minute that these three countries, Australia, India and South Korea, will be attending as guests. They've been invited as guests. So we're not seeing a formal upgrading of the G7 to a D10, but it might be that certain countries are keen to make it a more permanent feature, that these three countries are invited to future summits and that the G7 changes in nature to include these other democracies. Some countries will be against this. It can easily be perceived as an effort to encircle China. You know, who's the obvious member who's not there is China. Um, Democracy is being used as the shared membership criterion, which obviously excludes China. So countries like France and Italy have expressed a certain amount of caution around this idea. They're trying to develop their own diplomatic initiatives with China and the EU more broadly, having just signed an investment agreement with China would be wary of creating a group that seems to encircle and exclude China. Japan might be against the idea, not because it encircles China, but because it, again, dilutes Japan's voice as the only Asian country to have India and South Korea there. But also, more broadly, this is just creating another alphanumeric configuration, which it's not clear what exactly it's meant to do. You're just seeing a proliferation of these groups without a clear division of labour. And this is the gaggle of genes which has seemed to emerge no one has quite got an idea of how these groups overlap what's the division of labor where the strengths of certain groups are there just seems to be a proliferation of groups without cutting back on any. so what we have is messy multilateralism i guess
0: for our last question uh, let's turn to our attention to the upcoming 47th g7 the first to be hosted in post-Brexit Britain. What can we expect to come from the summits? And do you think there will be discussion about post-COVID recovery, or is it still too early to say?
1: Well, I think definitely we're going to be talking about post-COVID recovery, absolutely. The emphasis within the uh, UK government's messaging is that it's going to be focused around the idea of building back better. So that in a post-COVID world, we protect our public services, we build back, we recover in a sustainable way. We are trying to address climate change in a, an effective way. And that resonates also with the fact that Britain is going to be hosting later in the year COP26. So, the climate change conference that will be held in Glasgow in November at the end of the year gives Britain an opportunity to demonstrate that. Global Britain actually means something, that Britain is showing international leadership within the g G7 in the summer that then feeds into COP26 in Glasgow later in the year. So it'll definitely be framed around the post-COVID build-back-better response. This will then tie neatly into COP26, and that's all demonstrative of global Britain. So I think that, that will be the the very clear agenda for Britain's G7 presidency. But I guess the big question is whether it actually takes place physically or not. I think these summits do miss out on something if they have to take place via Zoom. The G20 went with the decision to hold its summit in November via Zoom. And you saw some very awkward Zoom shots of the leaders sat there, in front of flags, (laughs) so many flags. It looked like the most awkward Zoom Saturday night quiz during a pandemic. But the fact that these summits, going back to what I said at the beginning, are all predicated on the idea of interpersonal relations, about the informality, it's very difficult to replicate that with the awkwardness of a Zoom conversation, a time delay, and so on. Obviously, a lot of work is done by bureaucrats in the building to these summits, but still... The point that they're building up to is the leader's injection of political momentum on various issues. And that happens when the leaders actually physically get together. So I think it would be great if it can take place in Cornwall physically, but I guess we're going to have to wait and see. There might be a Zoom conversation as plan B. But an interesting choice as well. I was talking with friends about where Britain might be holding its G7 summit this year. Previously, the venues of, well, the first few summits were all held in London. The 1998 summit was held in Birmingham. 2005 was up in Scotland, in Glen Eagles. Then the last time Britain hosted a summit, it was Lockhearn in Northern Ireland. So it seemed to suggest that Britain might well choose Wales as a potential venue. But Cornwall, you can see why it makes sense. Security-wise, it's going to be very easy to police that summit. You know, you've not got much hinterland to police. You've basically got sea surrounding Cornwall, which will make it easier in many ways for security. It's going to provide that kind of informality, that kind of relaxed, comfortable atmosphere in which leaders can sort of talk face-to-face with each other and build those interpersonal relationships. So I can see the logic of the choice of Cornwall. And um, it's interesting also just seeing the local reaction in Cornwall, because it seems to be very much looking forward to the economic stimulus that being chosen as a summit venue might have for what is one of the poorest parts of the United Kingdom. And this, again, is nothing new. I remember in the year 2000, when the Japanese government chose Okinawa, and Okinawa had been bottom of all the lists, all the ranking of various potential summit venue sites in Japan. Okinawa had always ranked the bottom, but Prime Minister Obuchi sort of made the personal decision that Okinawa would host that summit. And in many ways it was lacking the infrastructure to host that kind of big event. But the people of Okinawa embraced it and used it as an opportunity to try and provide some kind of an economic stimulus So often you'll get this summit regarded as something, it's almost like the Olympics. The Olympics comes to town and that's a chance for a country to increase its soft power or increase its profile or benefit from the economic stimulus. There's a really good project to be done by somebody in the future around measuring what kind of impact these mega events have on the local population. I did look at sort of figures around tourism in Okinawa And you can certainly see a dip in the number of people visiting Okinawa in the summer of 2002 because there was a summit taking place, so it was off-limits for a lot of tourists. And you can see a slight bounce back afterwards. It's very difficult to discern any sort of concrete um, economic benefit that you get from hosting a summit. The reality of it is that in the short term, it will cause a lot of inconvenience to the locals in Cornwall. And in fact, on this note, I'll end with one small anecdote, which just sprang to mind. We took a group of Sheffield students to the G7 summit that was held in Germany in 2015 in Bavaria. And we arrived in the town where it was being held and uh, decided to go out for dinner that night. We found, I mean, most of the town was closed off. The residents of the town had basically left, often renting out their houses to journalists who were coming in to report on the summit. But we headed out into town, found a restaurant that was open and said, right, table for eight, please. The restaurant owner noticed our media passes, our accreditation passes, and said, I'm sorry, but we're not serving you. You're barred. You're associated with the summit. Oh, my God. Well, we said in response, well, what's the problem? You And he said, well, we were told that the G7 summit was coming to town. We were told there was going to be a huge influx of journalists. There was going to be a huge economic stimulus for our businesses. What turned out was that in the media centre, they were serving free food, free beer, free entertainment. None of the journalists were venturing outside of the media centre into the local town. So that the impact, the economic impact of this summit was very much limited so in protest against that this restaurant was almost sort of cutting off its nose to spite its face you know saying so we're not going to serve you because you associate with that summit that was meant to be bringing us in money but we're going to refuse your money as, in, in protest of that so there is a very interesting local dimension to these kind of summits the way the impact upon local areas is a whole area of research as well and this sort of again in a desperate attempt to link back to what how we started out in this chat. This just provides another aspect of symmetry, which is fascinating. The reason this topic I find so interesting is that it's just a lens to look at a whole range of other issues, whether they're local national or global.
0: Thank you, Higo. Yeah, to go back to your earlier point, I think we're all looking forward to our return to face-to-face meetings again. Hopefully we'll see that later this year. Thank you for answering my questions so comprehensively. Before we finish, could you share with us what projects you're working on at the moment for our listeners to look out for?
1: Sure. Well, I'm, I'm trying to work on two books at the minute whilst balancing homeschooling. Um, and that's not the easiest thing in the world. Um, one book is basically a history of the G20, looking at country-specific approaches to the G20. There's lots of books out there that talk about what the G20 is, how it's dealt with specific issues like global financial architecture or whatever. But there aren't any books that actually explicitly say, this is what Japan, Indonesia, India, South Korea, whoever it might be, are trying to achieve within the G20. And this is how it's gone about doing that over time. So it's completely theoretically redundant, but hopefully it tells an interesting story that's not been told before. And new other book that I'm working on is a book around um, ex-Japanese Prime Ministers. So I have written an article with Caroline Rose at the University of Leeds, published in the Journal of Contemporary Japan, which was our sort of initial attempt to look at the issue of what do Japanese Prime Ministers do after stepping down from power? And let's face it, there are we've got a huge data set to look at because there are so many of them. But the fact is that, you know, as an ex-leader... You're in a very interesting position. You may not have power, but you've still got some kind of influence. There's a lot of work been done on the American president, inevitably, and we're all going to be looking at to see what Donald Trump does once he leaves power. But there isn't much work on what Japanese prime ministers do after leaving power. So that's what we're hoping to look at as part of a broader book project.
0: Well, we'll all be looking out for that. Thank you for your time, Hugo. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Ollie. Always good to catch up.
0: You can find a link to Hugo's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Daisuke Tsuchiya, partner of the Brunswick Group and former diplomat in the Japanese Foreign Ministry, to discuss the Japanese business philosophy of Sanpo Yoshi, or the good for three parties. Daeske argues that this notion of stakeholder capitalism, where a successful business must also benefit others, is an important alternative to the profit-oriented mustard model of capitalism, especially in a world where nations are increasingly facing top-heavy demographics. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.